Let us pray. Heavenly Father, you have made us king citizens of your kingdom. May our hearts and minds be ever aware of this, that though we love much in this world, that we are citizens first of your kingdom. May we learn to live as exiles that glorify you in your peace and grace no matter what the world around us brings. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be always acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. Have you ever felt a longing for a place or a time that you have since left? A place where you loved to live or where your family still resides? For me, as I mentioned last week, that is my home state of Maine. If I close my eyes and think hard enough, I can still hear the sounds of the water on the shore. I can still see the pine trees. I can still smell the moisture in the air. Perhaps for many of you, you know this feeling and experience. My friends who have ministered overseas have described such a feeling as they long to return back to their home country. Or for others, perhaps in military service, a desire to return home. No matter what it is, this feeling of being an exile, this feeling of being away from our home is one that is actually intrinsic in our nature as humans. And this is what we are written, is being written to us by St. Peter. This week we start our series on 1 Peter. And we start with just two little verses. And the more I read about these two verses, the more convinced I am that we could just read these two verses and spend quite a bit of time here and still not have gotten all out of it, which we could have. But Peter writes, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles in the dispersion of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, and Asia, and Bilanthia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit for the obedience of Jesus Christ, to Jesus Christ and for the sprinkling in with his blood. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. Peter writes as an apostle of Jesus Christ, and for the first 1900 years of church history, there is never any doubt that Peter wrote this epistle. And in fact, I don't think there should be any doubt that he wrote this epistle, but yet there is for some reason. And normally I wouldn't spend too much time on talking about this, but there's a chance that you'll go to the store and pick up a copy of Time Magazine or National Geographic about Peter, because he is, in fact, a great figure. And as you're reading, you might read, he did not write the first epistle of St. Peter because there is a popular school of thought that that is such. And so I want to talk about that for just a couple minutes this morning. So when you do read that and you see the arguments that you make, you are better equipped to understand and know that, yes, in fact, St. Peter did write the first letter of St. Peter. 
First, they'll say, well, the grammar is too good to be that of a Galatian fisherman. There's no way he could possibly have written so eloquently. And in fact, they have a good argument here because the epistle of St. Peter is one of the most finely written little pieces of the New Testament. But we have a simple answer within the epistle itself. The 12th verse of the 5th chapter reads as follows. By Silvanus, a, brother, a faithful brother as I regard him, I have written to you briefly. The standard of old times was if you had the means, you could use somebody like Silvanus to write out your thoughts, much like you could pay this day and age to have a ghostwriter, though probably St. Peter would have been far more active in the writing of this. So what is most likely is that he dictated to Silvanus what he wanted to say, and Silvanus wrote it in such a way that it was as elegant and beautiful as we read today. Some people also object that the content is not what you would expect of someone who spent every day for three years traveling with Jesus. They wonder, well, why? Why, oh, why did he not write of those beautiful times he had with our Lord? Why didn't he write of days on the beach with, his, with Jesus and the stories that he told? Well, because that had already been written and it wasn't necessary what was necessary for St. Peter to write was encouragement to the exiles living in Asia Minor. What was necessary to be written was words to encourage you and I when the world around us finds our faith ridiculous. No, what he wrote is an encouragement. It is the theology of St. Peter, the theology of an apostle of Jesus Christ that he spells out here. Next, they argue, well, there was no widespread persecution at this time. And of course, they're right. There wasn't a legally dictated widespread persecution. Just as in our day and age, there is not widespread persecution. But you need only turn on the TV to know that from time to time, people ridicule our faith and tell us that we're foolish for believing that a man could be raised from the dead or perhaps other even more unkind things. But then we also hear stories of much harder things. For example, from rural Nigeria, where it's not far more likely that you might die for your faith, as marauding Muslim shepherds go about and kill Christians. Or India, where converts are equally persecuted for coming to know Christ. No, just as then and now there isn't widespread persecution, persecution did happen, and it does happen today. Finally, they argue, well, perhaps it was just somebody who knew Peter, who wrote in his name to give it more authority. This, again, is far from unlikely. They appeal to things such as the book of Enoch, which uses a far sense past prophet to give their book credibility or to honor Enoch. This is far different. In that case, it's clear that Enoch could not have possibly written the book of Enoch because he had since ascended into heaven. But in this case, Peter would have still been alive or recently deceased in their argument, and it misses the point. They would not have done that. No, there should be no doubt that first Peter is the words of the apostle Peter. But now we carry on to those who are the elect exile of the dispersion or dispersia in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, 
and Bethania. First, we get that word elect. And sometimes people are a bit uncomfortable with such a word. But we must remember that our conversion to Christ comes not from our will or your will or anyone else's will except for through the power of the Holy Spirit. It is the Holy Spirit that prepares our hearts, that makes our minds ready for the indwelling of the Spirit within him. I can get up and wax eloquently. I can perform my best sermon that I've ever given. But if the Holy Spirit is not working, it'll be nothing but just words. Rather, it is the Holy Spirit that takes my imperfect words and encourages, exhorts, convicts each and every one of us every day to walk closer to him. So yes, we pray for our friends that do not know Jesus. We pray for our loved ones, but it is the Holy Spirit that does the work. One commentator talks about it as such. Whether we are descendants from Abraham as Peter was, or Gentiles as were most of those addressed by Peter, we share together the wonders of God's amazing grace in Christ. The mystery of God's choosing will always offend those who stand before God in pride, forgetting their rebellion and guilt before God. They are ready to accuse him of favoritism, but those whom God's love has drawn to Christ will always confess with wonders his initiative in grace. It is God's initiative who has drawn us to him. And then we get to the exiles in dispersion or in the diaspora. This is, of course, a very interesting passage, for if you know anything about that region, which you may or may not, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, we know that that's Asia Minor. And that would have been a vastly or predominantly Gentile region. And yet he uses this term that we see in Scripture for discussion of such things as the exile to Babylonia, when Israel was drawn out of Judea, drawn out because of their sin to a foreign country, and they became the diaspora, living outside of the world of Judea. But this is not the exile that Peter is referring to. To understand that exile, we have to rewind several thousand years before that to the passage which we read from Genesis 3. The passage which we read of Adam and Eve's rebellion and humanity's exile from the garden. Humanity's exile from paradise. And since then, humanity has been in exile. But Christ, but God has called his elect to long for the kingdom of heaven. To long for that far off country. C.S. Lewis articulates this far better than I ever could. In speaking of this desire for our own far off country... We find in ourselves, even now, I feel a certain shyness. I am almost committed to an indecency. I am trying to rip open inconsolable, inconsolable secret in each of you, the secret which hurts so much that you take your revenge by calling it names like nostalgia and romanticism and adolescence, the secret also which pierces with such sweetness that when in an intimate conversation the mention of it becomes imminent, we grow awkward and affect, affect to laugh at ourselves. 
the secret we cannot hide and cannot tell, though we desire our experience. We cannot hide it because our experience is constantly suggesting it, and we betray ourselves like lovers at the mention of a name. Our commonest expedient is to call it beauty and behave as if it, had, it was a settled matter. Wordsworth expediently was to identify it with certain moments in his own past. But all this is a cheat. If Wordsworth had gone back to those moments in the past, he would not have found the thing itself, but only a reminder of it. What he remembered would turn out to be itself a remembering. The book or the music in which we thought beauty was located will betray us if we trust to them. It, with, it was not in them. It only came through them. And what came through them was a longing. These things, the beauty, the memory of our own past, are good images of what we really desire. But if they are mistaken for the things itself, they turn into dumb idols, breaking the heart of their worshipers. For they are not the thing itself. They are only the scent of a flower if we have not found the echo of a tune that we have not heard, news from a country we have not yet visited. C.S. Lewis picks up on this idea, this theme of being an exile. And there's something within each and every one of us that longs for that time which was lost in the garden. And yet for us who have been called into Christ, for those of us who have been grafted into him, we know what this longing is truly is. This longing is that longing for that far off kingdom, the kingdom of heaven which we are now citizens and yet we wait for with patience and with joy. We are exiles from that far off place. In the letter to Diognesus, you might, or perhaps you might be wondering what this means for our own citizenship here and now. And in a letter from the second century, to Diognesus, an early Christian, writes it out as such. For Christians are no different from other people in terms of their country, language, or custom. Nowhere do they inhabit cities of their own. They use a strict or use a strict dialect or live life out of the ordinary. They live in their respective countries, but only as resident aliens. They participate in all things as citizens, and they endure all things as foreigners. Every foreign territory is a homeland for them, and every homeland a foreign territory. They marry like everyone else and have children, but they do not expose them once they are born. This goes on, and I will share that online. But the, mesh, the thing that they're trying to get at in this letter is that we live not only as citizens, but I think the best citizens in whatever country God has planted us in because we know what our truest citizenship is. We live as citizens and exiles simultaneously. There's a tension of both. And then St. Peter switches his view to another thing, the thing which makes us into the citizens of this far off country. He says, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for the obedience to Christ and for the sprinkling of his blood. We see here spelled out the salvific action of 
the salvation action, which makes us into citizens of this far country. First and foremost, we hear of the foreknowledge of God. God has known each and every one of you for all of eternity. Before your mother even met your father, God knew you. Before your mother even knew that she was pregnant with you, God knew you. Before your mother could feel you moving in your womb, God knew you and knew you by name. Before you were born and swaddled in your mother's arm and your mother and father said, you shall be called whatever your name is. God knew your name. God knew you for all of eternity and wrote your name in the book of life. And then the Spirit gives us new birth. The Spirit sanctifies the believer. The Spirit makes our hearts ready so that when we hear the call of Christ, we can be obedient to that call. Obedient to the call which Christ has made to all men and women. Repent and believe for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent and believe, for I am your king. And then we are sprinkled in the blood of Christ. For those who have yet to hear it, that is an odd saying to hear, but it is the blood of Christ which has made Christian men and women clean. Christian men and women washed from their sin and their guilt and their shame. It is because of the blood of Christ which was shed on the cross. And so the Trinity, the whole of the God, acts in our salvation. It is not simply Christ's act on the cross, nor the fact that the Holy Spirit is given to the believer, nor that God knew us from before all times, but that each and every one of part of the Trinity has acted in our salvation. And St. Peter spells that out for us and then tells the faithful, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. May all your moments, Peter says, be filled with the abundance, growing, growing abundance of undeserved blessing. Our call is to live in that peace, to live as exiles in a world that may appreciate that which we bring or may mock us for our faith. We live as exiles, but we live at peace and in grace. Archbishop Leighton, the late Bishop of Glasgow, wrote as follows, The persuasion of that alone makes the mind clear and serene, like the fairest summer days. My peace I give you, saith Christ, not as the world. Let not your hearts be troubled. All the peace and favor of the world cannot calm a troubled heart. But where this peace is, in which, is which Christ gives, all trouble and disquiet quiet of the world cannot disturb it. When he giveth quietness, who then can make trouble? And when he hideth his face, who then can behold them? Whether it be done against nation or against man only, a few hours of feasting will weary the most professed epicure, but a conscience thus at peace is a continual feast with continual and unwearied delight. 
St. Peter calls the Christian exiles, but then calls them into the grace and peace of Christ. Will you accept that invitation? Will you live in the peace of Christ which pass all understanding, residing as exiles, whether the world loves or hates you? Will you live in that peace? In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Ghost. Amen.